May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. If you have your Bible handy, please turn to the Gospel of Jonah in the Old Testament. We will be in Jonah chapter 2 this evening as we continue our little mini-series on the book of Jonah. Last week we ended in chapter 1 verse 17 with Jonah being swallowed by a great fish which God had appointed to swallow him when he was cast into the sea. And that's where we left Jonah. He's been there all week long, although we know in the timeline of the story he's only been there a few days. He's going to spend three days in the belly of that fish. As we get into the story this evening, I want to dispel a couple of myths that you may have heard. I want to clear a few things up, for example. You might have have in your mind, you might imagine that the story of Jonah is very much like the story of Pinocchio, who was swallowed by a whale and spent some time inside the whale. You might be tempted to think of the story of Moby Dick and how there were sailors who went out in search of this phantom whale and had a war with it. You might be tempted to think of the more recent version of the story in VeggieTales as they tried to retell the story of Jonah and the big fish. Now all of those things are rooted and grounded in some truth and some reality of this story and yet they have twisted it and perverted it in such a way that we miss the point of the story of Jonah. Back in the day when my wife and I were just getting started in ministry, we were working with a small church out in West Texas, in Sudan, Texas. And each evening, uh, each Sunday evening before service, we did something that I think was called Children's Corner or Kids' Corner. I can't remember exactly what it was called. I should have done more research and asked my wife for the details on this. But the point is, we would meet with the kids before worship and we would lead them in songs and reciting different kinds of scriptures. And I remember one of the songs that was really fun to sing was the song about Jonah. Some of you may know it. I will not sing it for you and I will not ask you to sing it, but you might know it like this. It's a question. Who did, who did, who did, who did, who did swallow Jojo Jonah? Do any of you know that? I'm the only one. See, I'm dating myself. Well, the answer was easy. A whale did, 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 swallow Jojo Jonah. And it was a lot of fun to sing. You could really get the kids amped up right before worship. And then they would be squirming in their parents' laps, uh, making a mess of things. It was fun to sing that song, but it was not accurate. There's something missing in that song, just like there's something missing in the portrayals of Jonah and the big fish that you find in the knockoff version from Disney or VeggieTales. What we're going to do this evening is enter into this story and we're going to see something that is so evident, so clear in the text that you will wonder at the end, how did I ever miss that? Remember last week I mentioned that when we read these stories, we often read them with a veil over the text and we end up drawing conclusions that many devout Hebrews would draw. But we're missing the point of the story. What we're trying to do in this series is lift the veil off of the text so that we can see that this story is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus himself said that this story is about Jesus. And so we want to go to this story again and ask the question, where is Jesus in Jonah chapter 2? 
And I think you will be surprised where you find him. Our sermon text for this evening comes from Jonah 2. It's the whole chapter. If you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. The word of God reads that Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word, and all the church says, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may or may not know this, but there is much controversy surrounding the story of Jonah. Scholars want to know, is this historical or mythical? Is it allegorical or literal? And my answer to that is that it's best to follow the lead of Jesus Christ and the apostles on matters like this. And when you do so, you find Jesus treating this like a true story. It's a story that tells the truth, not only about Jonah, but it tells the truth about who Jesus is. And so we're going to follow Jesus's lead tonight and not really care so much about what all of the scholars say about these things in their private debates. We want to follow Jesus's lead. And what Jesus tells us is that this story is undeniably Christocentric, Christotelic. That means that it is pointed to and finds its end in the person and work of Jesus. We have in the story this creepy image of Jonah who's been cast into the sea. Notice the sailors did it last week, but in Jonah's prayer, he says that God is the one who cast him into the the deeps of the sea. And while he is there, God appoints or ordains or sends a fish on a mission. And that fish's mission is to swallow Jonah. Jonah's been cast into the sea where he will certainly die if he is left alone in the sea. And yet a fish comes to rescue him. And what happens to him in that fish? A few nights ago, I was in my backyard with some of your sons, some of the younger guys here. And we had a fire going around the fire pit and we're roasting marshmallows. And I took this as an opportunity to ask them their view on some theological matters. 
And so I asked your sons, uh, tell me what you know about the story of Jonah. And they told me what they knew about the story of Jonah. And then I asked them a question. Well, what do you think happened to Jonah when he was swallowed by that fish? And they just looked at me. And I said, well, do you believe he lived or died? And then they all just stared at me with their marshmallows going ablaze in the fire. Because they started to wonder, did he live or did he die? There's no end of commentaries out there that try to explain to you in a natural way all of the ways that Jonah could have lived. All of the ways that there's probably a fish out there large enough that could swallow a man and a man could live in the belly of that fish for a certain amount of time. And there are all these theories about what kind of fish it might have been. There are stories that you find of sailors who reported losing someone overboard and then discovering that person a day or two later who has been vomited out by a fish or maybe they caught the fish and cut it open and the person was still alive. Terribly damaged, badly wounded, but still alive if you can call it that. I want to suggest to you that what happened to Jonah is none of that. That we don't need to find a natural solution to this problem. What we need to know is that Jonah went into the sea and he was swallowed by a fish and he died in the fish. His life was taken. And he tells us that in the very prayer that, that he writes when he says that he was in the belly of Sheol. That's in verse 2. Sheol is the place of death. It is the place of the departed. So when Jonah considers where he is, he's not just thinking, I'm inside the bowels of a large creature that has swallowed me. No, he sees himself as being in the bowels of Sheol, in the place of the dead. He has gotten his death wish. He wanted the sailors to kill him. They threw him in the sea. The fish came and now he has died. Very important for us to see that because Jesus says that Jonah is a symbol. He is a sign of the Christ. When Jesus went into the tomb, he was not simply unconscious. He was not simply asleep. He was not mostly dead. He was dead, just as Jonah was dead in the belly of this fish. Interesting, if some of you remember back to a couple of summers ago when we walked through the creation stories in the book of Genesis. And we saw how God is sovereign over all of His creatures, over all the creatures that His hand has made. And one of the books that I pointed you to is a book called, um, it's on the back of your worship order, but it's a book called The Biblical Cosmos, A Pilgrim's Guide to the Weird and Wonderful World of the Bible. The author of that book, in commenting on the story of Jonah, says that it is quite possible that the fish was a a cosmic sea monster of the kind we have considered above earlier in the book. It is interesting to note that when the Hebrew text was translated into Greek, the word chosen to translate dog, which is kind of funny that the Hebrew word for fish is dog. It was dog, not ichthus, fish, or an alien, sea creature, but Ketos, meaning gargantuan fish or sea monster. This is the word with a dark and scary connotations. When Jesus in Matthew's gospel speaks of the beast that swallowed Jonah, it is, of course, a ketos. That's the word he used. A vast and lethal sea monster. This is not the friendly whale of modern children's Bible smiling sweetly as it rescues Jonah. Yes, this is the stuff of nightmares, children. When you go home tonight and you're laying in your bed in the dark and you wonder, what kind of creature was that again? 
It's like no creature you've ever seen or imagined. Some of you are working on a coloring sheet that was provided for you. I think adults might even be using those as well, but... You'll see in there that there is a kind of creature that's more aligned, uh, more in line with what is in mind here. This is a creature. Jonah has been cast into the deep, into the chaos. This is the language of creation that in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, recall that the earth was formless and void and the spirit hovered over the surface of the deep. Same thing is happening in the story of Jonah. A windstorm has churned up the water. There's chaos over the surface of the deep and Jonah is plunged into that and there are all kinds of strange and wonderful things happening in the story. God appoints a creature to go and swallow Jonah. Now, the point of all of this is not to figure out what kind of creature that was, but simply to understand that God is the one who ordained this great fish to swallow Jonah for what purpose? It was for the purpose of saving him, rescuing him from himself, rescuing him from the tumultuous seas. And it's in this way that Jonah experiences salvation in the very way that you have experienced salvation. He experienced salvation through judgment. He experiences life through death. Going back to Jonah 1 for a moment, remember how the captain of the ship urged Jonah to cry out to his God and perhaps his God would answer and help them. And you read all of Jonah 1 and Jonah never cries out to God in prayer, not one time. God had come to Jonah and said to him, go and cry out against the city of Nineveh. And Jonah doesn't cry out, not one time in all of chapter 1. But when he finds himself sinking in the sea, into the abyss, into the darkness, where he is descending in the Hebrew mind, he is on his way to hell. It is then that he begins to cry out. It is then that he begins to pray. And he hasn't even hit rock bottom yet. But on his way down... He turns his heart to God and begins to cry out. You notice in his prayer, by the way, I want to highlight a couple of things for you. In the first few verses from verse 2 down to verse 6, you see Jonah's descent. He is on his way down. Remember last week we emphasized how chapter 1 just talks about the downward spiral of Jonah and the downward spiral of a man who is fleeing from God. In chapter 2, you see that clearly as he descends downward. He's going down. He's sinking. He's going down further, farther than he's ever been before. And just as a side note in terms of Christian apologetics, one of the things that's interesting about this story is Jonah reveals knowledge of the depths of the sea that people in his day and age should not have known. They didn't have the technology, the skill to discover these things. Somehow he knows that the roots of the mountains are in the bottom of the sea. Somehow he knows that there are currents and channels that run through the bottom of the sea. Somehow he knows that there is land at the bottom of the sea. He sees all this in his prayer as he sinks down. This is his descent. How far down must he go? He must go all the way down. In verse 6 he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. 
Recently, I've been texting with a friend of mine. Some of you know him, and if I shared his name with you now, you would not be surprised at all by what I'm about to tell you. But I asked him what he's been up to lately, and he talked about a major move in his life. He talked about his efforts to rebuild a life after, in his words, after massive destruction has taken over his life. And this is through decisions that he has made. And he commented in a text yesterday that things are looking up now. He says, after all, when you're at the very bottom, that's the only way you can look, right? Is up. That's where Jonah is. He's at the very bottom now. He's all the way down to where the land is. And death is about to enclose upon him and he's looking up. And what does he discover? Not more water, not more creatures, but he discovers Yahweh, the covenant God who brings him up from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. If I could pause for just a moment here and say that this is the turning point of Jonah's life. He has made the descent as far down as anyone can go all the way down to death. All the way down to death with the weight of his sin dragging him to the bottom, into the darkness, away from the light, away from light. That's where his sin has taken him. This is a man who confessed faith in God. He acknowledged that God is creator. A man who identified with the covenant people of God. And yet this is where his sin has brought him. I want to suggest to you that this is a model, an example of what could happen to you in your life if you flee from the Lord, if you run away from the face of God. This is the kind of place you end up. It's not the imaginary fantasy land of Tarshish. No, it's down at the bottom, in the darkness, in the pit, in death, in hell. This, by the way represents something that happened to Jesus. We confess this every week in the Apostles' Creed when we talk about what Jesus has done. We say He descended into death. Some of the older uh, traditions of the Apostles' Creed say He descended into hell. It captures the idea that you find in Jonah of someone who has gone so far away from the face of God that they find themselves in the abyss in this place of death. That's where Jonah is. But what I want you to notice also is that no matter how deep his sin drags him, no matter how far down the weight of his own rebellion takes him, There is something even deeper than his sin. Something even heavier and weightier than his rebellion. And that's what Jonah finds at rock bottom. It's not land. It's not death. It's not bars. It's grace. That's what he finds at the bottom. And it is grace that begins to take him and lift him back up to to God. He's so far away from the face of God. He's so far away from the holy place of God, from the temple of God in terms of his geography. But all it takes is one cry to Yahweh, one cry to the covenant God, and that God responds to him. And his cry is heard, not muffled through the waves, not muffled through the belly of the creature. His cry is heard in the holy temple of the Lord. That's where his cry is heard. And it is from there that God raises him up and then Jonah is able to give thanks to God and make his ascent 
There are two parts to every life story. The, one, the part that everyone is familiar with is the descent. We all know what it's like to go down. We all know what it feels like to go down. A few of us, by God's grace, know what it's like to hit rock bottom and then be turned around by grace. And that's where Jonah is. And he makes his ascent. But it's not his own ascent. It's God lifting him up. It's God ordering the fish to move from the depths to the heights until he is finally vomited out on land, spit out on the beach. Descent and ascent, that that is the story of our life. Dying and rising in union with Christ. How did Jonah get to where he was? How did he end up here? Three things I want you to notice. There are three baptisms that I want to highlight for you in this story. The first is the baptism of Jonah. Baptism of Jonah, not only because he's baptized in the sea, but also because he is rescued by a great fish, which was the symbol of Jesus Christ. In other words, the mere act of Jonah's baptism did not save him. Many people are baptized. Many people are plunged into the water. Many people are washed with water. But many of them perish because it's just baptism itself. It's just a water ritual. What is it that makes a difference in Jonah's case? What makes the difference in his case is that he's baptized into the sea, but then he is consumed, swallowed up by a great fish. And that great fish is a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to put a finer point on these things, what I want you to see is that not all the baptized are saved but only those who are consumed by the great fish who is Jesus Christ. Only those who are involved in Jesus Christ, only those who are engrafted into Jesus Christ, only those who are engulfed by Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, are saved through their baptism. As Jonah says at the end, salvation is from the Lord. That's the first baptism that you can see in this story. The second one is this. Jesus referred to His own sufferings on the cross as a kind of baptism. This is going to be very important for you in just a moment. This is described for us in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10 where Jesus says to His disciples, they want to sit with Him on the right and left hand on his, in His kingdom and glory. And Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they say... Yes, we are able. And he said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. To what is he referring? He's not referring to a water ritual in that story. He's referring to his crucifixion. They want to sit with him in glory. But he says, you must follow me into suffering. Jesus is baptized into suffering. He is swallowed up in suffering. He is engulfed in suffering. And it is through the baptism of Jesus at the cross that prophets like Jonah and people like us have any hope of salvation. 
Just as Jonah cried out to the Lord from the belly of the fish, so we learn that Jesus Christ cried out in His life through the course of His ministry. Not just when He was at the cross, but in the days leading up to the cross. He was crying out to God. The Hebrew writer tells us in 5-7, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. This is Jesus crying out to God the Father, Not my will, but yours be done. In sharp contrast to Jonah who said, Not your will, but mine be done. Psalm 69 describes for us what happened to Jesus at the cross. The Psalms, the whole book of Psalms are Psalms about Jesus. These are the prayers of the Christ. And listen to this. Put this in the mouth of Jesus. Imagine Jesus suspended between heaven and earth on the cross in this baptism of suffering. And this is a prayer. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Jonah is drowning. He is swallowed by a fish in the sea because of his own sin. And Jesus on the cross is drowning and suffering. Grasping for life because of your sin and mine. One greater than Jonah has come. One greater than Jonah has come. And so in this we see the baptism of Jesus, not by John the Baptist in a river, but the baptism of Jesus at the cross. The baptism of His suffering. There's a third baptism. That involves yours and mine. Those of us who were baptized with water. Those of us who believe Jesus Christ. Is the son of God. Lord and savior. Are saved. But notice. We are not saved. By virtue of the water. Just as Jonah was not saved. By virtue of the water. We are saved by virtue of the Christ, just as Jonah was saved by virtue of the great fish, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. In Christ alone is found salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But something happened to you in baptism. You didn't do it to yourself. You didn't make it happen, but something happened to you in baptism. And I want to remind you of that now to use an old saying from Matthew Henry. I want to grab you by your baptism for a moment. Something happened to you that is so easy to forget, but you've got to remember it. So that you see that Jonah's story and your story are the same story because they're both centered on the person and work of Jesus. When you were baptized, Paul tells us, you were united to Christ in His death. You were united to Christ in His life. 
You were united to Christ in His crucifixion and His resurrection. That's Romans 6, 1-4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. What happened to Jonah when that gigantic, terrible monster of a fish swallowed him up? He was united to Christ in his death and in his life. He was united to Christ in his crucifixion and resurrection. That's what happened to Jonah. What happened to you when you were baptized? You were united to Christ in his death and in his life, in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. In other words, you weren't playing copycat. You weren't trying to die and live again in imitation of Jesus. You were being united to Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. You were being swallowed up by the true and better fish, which is Jesus Christ. And it is in Christ that you find salvation. What is baptism? Throughout Scripture in these water ordeals, baptism is... An act of God's judgment on the world. It brings destruction. All you need to do is look at the flood. It brought destruction to the world. Look at the Red Sea. It brought destruction to the Egyptians. Look at the crossing of a river. It brought destruction to the Canaanites. And were it not for the person and work of Jesus Christ and the grace of the Holy Spirit, it would bring destruction to us. So what makes it salvific? It's not the amount of water. It's not whether it's rough or calm. It's not whether it's clean or dirty water. It's not about washing filth off of your skin. It is about the person and work of Christ The question is, does He consume you? Does He swallow you up? Does He engulf you? Do you wake up and find yourself at the heart of Jesus Christ? Or do you still find yourself adrift in the oceans and seas of the world? Just as Jonah was swallowed by the great fish, so we have been swallowed by the great fish That is, we who have put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is His grace and His work alone. But there are some interesting connections here between Jonah and Christ as well. Going back to what Jesus said, that Jonah is a sign of the Christ. Let me try to tie some things together for you here as we move toward the end of this sermon. Jonah was baptized in the sea and he died and was buried and was raised to new life. And next week we will see this new life included mission. So Jesus was baptized at the cross. And we were baptized in water and united with Christ in his baptism. 
Not his baptism in water at the Jordan River, by the way, but in his baptism on the cross at Golgotha. Baptism is something that interrupts our personal narrative. It interrupts our storyline, doesn't it? Isn't that what happened with Jonah? This baptismal event of being tossed into the sea, swallowed by a fish, and regurgitated out, that changed everything for him. Likewise, as you consider the time of your baptism and you want to improve upon it, that doesn't mean make your baptism better, by the way. It means to live out the reality of your baptism. And as you live out that reality, know that there was a disruption in your timeline, in your story. The story that you lived prior to that, running away from God, fleeing from Him, living in rebellion, is suddenly disrupted. And now you find yourself living in grace and being transformed by the Spirit and being reshaped by the Word of God. Baptism marks the end of an old storyline of disobedience and rebellion towards God, but it marks the beginning of a new storyline of obedience and mission with Jesus. That's what we see clearly in this story. And all of this happens while Jonah is praying. Jonah's praying. Now I said to you earlier, Jonah died in the fish. And those of you who are still with me are saying, wait a minute, if he died in the fish, how did he also pray? Well, he didn't write the prayer in the fish. He did not have a desk and a lamp and an inkwell. He wrote the prayer afterwards. The prayer is finely crafted, bringing in elements from the Psalms. And it has a very interesting structure showing his descent and ascent. The fact is that when Jonah was engulfed by the fish, he was praying. And I want to suggest to you now that that's exactly what baptism is. It is a prayer enacted. It is a person crying out to God for new life. It is crying out to God for grace. It is praying and asking God for a clean conscience. This is what Peter tells us when 1 Peter 3.21 when he says, Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What gives it power? What makes it efficacious? What is it that makes it do its work? It is not water. It is not people, but God working through Christ and raising Him from the dead. Jonah was not delivered by the fish until he was vomited out on the land. That's when his deliverance was complete. And so I want you to think about this watershed moment in your personal experience as you think of this story how does this story point you to Christ and how does how does your life point back to Christ and how do you and Jonah center on the Lord Jesus Christ you'll see that your story is very much like Jonah's story from a theological vantage point all of this Baptism, being cast into the sea, being raised up and spit out by the fish. All of this is a picture of God's sovereign work of grace. God is the one who sent the storm to get Jonah's attention. God is the one who cast him into the heart of the seas and caused the flood and waves and deep to surround him. God is the one who ordained a savior to rescue him. God is the one who raised him from this deep and watery grave. Jonah was aware of all of that so that he concludes this experience by saying salvation belongs to the Lord. 
And I want to echo that by saying, and it is only in the Lord that salvation is found. Perhaps the most poignant verse in all of Jonah is found in verse 8. Various ways to translate this. The things I've read lately talk about the difficulties of picking up all of the different nuances and the different ways this phrase can be translated. The ESV, which I'm reading from, says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But when I first learned the story of Jonah, I was reading from the New International Version, the NIV, which some of you might be reading, and I love what it says. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now, if I could urge you to do some self-examination at this time. And let me just ask you, as you look at your own life and consider your own experience, I wonder what kind of idols you're clinging to in your hands What kind of idols you're clinging to in your hearts? What kind of functional saviors do you have that you're relying on that prevent you from laying hold of the grace of God which is freely offered to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ? What are those idols? What do they look like in your life? Is it money? Is it a career? Is it another relationship? What is it in your life that you're hanging on to so dearly that prevents you from latching on to Jesus Christ? I can't look into your heart and see those things, nor can you look into mine and see them. But we just need to know the truth that those of us who hang on to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be ours. We see in Jonah chapter 1 that there were sailors who called upon all kinds of false gods and none of those gods answered them in their moment of despair, in their moment of fear. But only when they called on the God of the Lord Jesus Christ did they find rest and peace in this world. And as long as Jonah held on to his own personal idols... His idols of nationalism, his idols of rebellion, his idols of wanting to do things his way. He found himself in a state of misery. But as soon as those idols were ripped from his heart and his hands, he found himself in the grace and mercy of Yahweh. The God of covenant, the God of grace, the God of peace. And it was in God that he found life. And I pray the same will be true for you this evening.